A very special episode today, guys, with a very special guest, Joel Foster. You may not even recognize the name Joel Foster, and that's okay, but you'll recognize the brand that he founded, Reebok. Yes, Reebok. Reebok went on to become the world's largest sports brand, surpassing Adidas and surpassing Nike, and had annual revenue of almost $4 billion. I got the opportunity to talk to Joe and hear the Reebok Genesis story, the origin story of such a prolific brand. I hope you enjoy the story. Please leave some feedback and get in touch with Joe on, on, on Instagram at Reebok the founder. Please send me some love and support on Instagram at Development by David too, and suggest some other podcast guests that you might want on. For now, enjoy the episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking with Joe. Well, <clears throat> thank you for the invitation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, at my age, I get the odd uh, cough that I need to clear up. Um, no, it's great. I mean, it's uh, a long time since uh, my brother and myself started Reebok. And, uh, and I guess we didn't really start Reebok to be known as Joe Foster or Jeff Foster. I, I think our, our aim was to become Reebok. That was the one. That was, that was the plan. Um, and we didn't, we didn't see, even in those early days, have a plan about that. It was just that uh, we needed to change. And I don't know if you've read the book, but mo most of this, there, there we go, that's the book. <laughs> most of these podcasts and people wanting to know more has come from writing the book. And uh, a lot of people do say, well, why, did, you know, why didn't you write it earlier? Why did you write a book? And somehow it didn't seem right earlier. It was time to just rest, relax, listen to people, do things, watch Reebok grow or do whatever Reebok was doing. But um, so many things, you know, technology's advanced everything. And uh, as such, everybody knows everything about everything. However, when you're somebody like me who's experienced something and you're reading that everything and you find out, no, that didn't happen. No, it didn't happen like that. <clears throat> Sorry, no. So you get to the point where you think, mm, about time to uh, get this straight. Now, if I tell my story, then people can refer to that. <clears throat> if, if they want to refer, how did Reebok start? Um, it didn't start because Jeff and myself changed the name of the original Foster family company. <clears throat> it changed because we... Uh, when we were growing up, you don't know any different. You grow up with a family and that's it. But we did two years of national service way, way back. I'm talking about 1953 to 1955. <clears throat> and when we came back to the family business that we'd been working in for a short while, and we looked at it and we found this business is still in the 1930s. Jeff had been in Germany. He'd seen Adidas. He'd seen Puma. He'd seen how they were growing, changing. And it's when we came back. So we came back to a company. And that, now that company had been started by my grandfather. So we're now going back again. And we're going back to 1895. And in 1895, um, my grandfather, same name as me, Joe, he made himself a pair of spike running shoes. And uh, why did he make that? Well, he, he, 
He was a member of the local athletics club. I think in those days it was called Bolton Primrose Harriers. I don't know why it was Primrose. I, probably after the pub they went into. <clears throat> but uh, he, uh, he decided he made himself a parish. And why did he decide that? Well, his grandfather, and he used to go visit his grandfather, used to, was a cobbler. And as a cobbler, he used to repair shoes. <clears throat> and repair shoes. And not only did he repair street shoes, he also repaired cricket boots. Now, in those days, and we're talking about uh, 1885 to 1890, they had spikes in the bottom. And they, probably my grandfather said to his grandfather, why have they got spikes in? Obvious answer, to give them grip. Grip when they're bowling, grip when they're batting or fielding. So it's pretty obvious grandfather then had a bit of a light bulb moment and thought, well, we run on a cinder track and we run on grass but we were slipping about all the time. If I made spikes, well. <clears throat> so grandfather was about an average runner. He would come sort of halfway down uh, the back in a race. But when he made his shoes, his first race after that, he came a very unlikely second, which um, got a lot of attention. And that attention, he wasn't a big lad. So it could well have been that they sort of looked at him and said, hey, Joe, you've got to make us some shoes. Or they, they asked him, Joe, would you? But <clears throat> I think he was probably bullied a bit into that one. However, he started making shoes. <clears throat> started making shoes for the local athletes. And uh, that's where his business started. And the wonderful thing is that uh, today we hear of influencers. In those days, he knew about influencing. Because by 1904, he'd set his own business up by 1900. By 1904, there were three world records broken in his shoes by uh, Alf Shrub. <coughs> in, in a one-hour race, Alf Shrub uh, broke three world records. But he got those because Joe had obviously seen, this is, this is a top man, give him a pair of shoes. Brilliant. So <coughs> he knew so this was your grandfather's business that he invented alongside the running spike. Was this the same business that your dad and Uncle Bill inherited that you worked for? It is indeed, yes. But to get to that point, we, we're, we're talking now 1904, first decade of the 20th century. Second decade, we had World War I. By we came to the 1920s, this was my grandfather, Joe Foster's, really his better pock. This was it. During the 1920s, he... he, he more or less made everybody's shoes for the Olympics. And I, I don't know if you've heard of Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire is a film. Ah, Eric Little. Yeah. Three, that's it, Eric Little. Uh, I think he was Scotsman, wasn't he? Eric Little. Um, Harold Abraham and Lord Burley. Uh, they all won gold medals during the 20s. But their shoes, they were made by Joe Foster, my grandfather, along with many others. And um, we, we do have um, a letterhead from the 1920s where grandfather lists down all the clubs that he was supplying. And you can hardly name a football club in the country, even Rangers, Celtic. He was supplying them with boots and training shoes. Way back, uh, and it has on the top of this one, so supplies to all athletes for the Antwerp Olympic Games in 1920. So he, he obviously knew how to... Uh, how to grow his business. And he knew what influenced it. In those days, though, his influence would be to influence athletes. Now, 
influence are used now, but they, they influence in street. Now it's gone from just athletes into an athlete, it's gone to street. So during the 1920s, that was my grandfather's belly pot. That's brilliant. However, he died in 1933, which was 18 months before I was born. And I was born on his birthday. Wow. So, grandmother, she was a bit of a firebrand. And she said he's brought his name with him. My mother didn't like the idea that I'd be called Joe in those days, no. But she had no choice. She had no choice at all. <clears throat> grandmother had last words, so I became Joe Foster as well. 1935. Of course, by 1939, we had World War II. And as you suggested, by that time, he had died, and my father and Uncle Bill, they took over the business. Well, in a way, they took over the business. They really didn't take over the business until 1939, and even beyond that, because Grandma, Grandma took over the business, and she kept them together. She made them work. Um, but unfortunately, uh, when she died, I think that was seemed to be the end of the relationship between my father and uncle. For whatever reason, I still don't know today why they were just so embittered towards each other. But of course, we do know that Adi Dassler and Rudy Dassler, both the same, <clears throat> couldn't work with each other. And so Rudy left and Rudy set up Puma. And of course, Adi Dassler was Adidas. Uh, didn't happen in the Foster family. So J.W. Foster and Sons got stuck where my grandfather really had died and after that where my grandmother had died. And they were making this same shoe. So Jeff and I, we went into, both same time went into forces. Jeff had been deferred. I went in when I was 18. And we came out, I was 20, young men, and we tried our best to get father and uncle. Look, you've got to improve this business, you know. We need to, well, we didn't, I think the word marketing didn't exist in uh, sort of the, uh, the, the mid-50s. It was all to do with sales. We have to have salesmen. We have to have a plan. You know, we've, we've got to get this business growing. However, by 1958, we'd given up on the idea that they would ever get together or we would ever improve on, on the Foster's business. Jeff and I had uh, gone to college at night and we'd learned, we'd learned about shoemaking. Okay, we knew how to make spike track shoes from the 1930s, but we needed to modernize. We needed to be in today's market at that time. And so the best thing about it, whilst we did learn a lot more about shoemaking, we also made friends, we made acquaintances, we got to know people, we got to know the business. Now that was a tremendous help, because when we did leave in 1958, we needed people to, where did we get machinery from? So all these questions, we could get answered. And we moved down the road six miles and set up our new factory, which was uh, in an old brewery. It was called... Mercury Sports Footwear. And why Mercury Sports Footwear? Well, that was the name I came up with. Seemed very good. Mercury. And we also had the Wing Messenger as our logo. He was on the, he was on the side of the shoe. Um, brilliant. 18 months later, it, we're doing quite nicely. We're making a bit of money. <coughs> we're selling our shoes and that's quite good. And the accountant said, you're doing okay. But what you need to do, you need to register your name. And of course, uh, you know, what, what do you mean? You're 23 registered name, why? Well, if somebody else decides they're going to make 
sports footwear and they want to call it uh, Mercury, you can't stop them. You're going to have to go to court. You're going to have to prove that it's your name. So, but if you register it, they can't use it. Oh, right. Fair enough. How do we do that? Well, you go and see a patent agent and in Manchester, not far away from where we were. Patent agent's fine. I called up, uh, called up the guy, um, Wilson Gunn Ellis was the company. And they said, look, okay, Mercury, we'll look for that. A few days later, he came back and said, uh, sorry, it's taken by, uh, I think it was a British Shoe Corporation. I've registered this name. Uh, you can have it if you want, but you have to buy it for £1,000. Well, to us in those days, £1,000 was impossible. Absolutely impossible. And I'd, I'd gone along to see him. And uh, so the, uh, the patent agent said, look, he pointed through his window. It was nice, nice warm bed, like May or June. And he pointed through the window and to a sign, Kodak. And I get it. So what's Kodak? He said, exactly, it's nothing. It's a made up name. Yeah, if, if you want a name, make it up. Because so many names, which everybody knows, are registered in some way or the other. So he said, okay, don't bring me one name, though. Give, give me 10 names, to, and we'll put those to the, uh, to the registrar. <clears throat> okay. So I go back, I sit down with the table with Jeff, and we're sitting around, and we're going, bringing up names like Cougar, Falcon, you know, names which are sort of a bit of aggro in there, a bit of, well, yeah, that's good. So we had these 10 names, but in 1943, right in the middle of the war, I won a race, World War II. I won this 60-yard sprint, <clears throat> and my prize, my prize was a dictionary. A dictionary, yes. But it was a Webster's Dictionary. I didn't know at the time what a Webster's Dictionary was, <clears throat> not so many years later, but it's an American Dictionary, which means quite a lot of the spellings in the dictionary are different than they would be in the Oxford English Dictionary. But uh, how would this dictionary? So we're looking for names, and I pick up my dictionary. I like that letter R. I thought, R, oh, yeah. So I flip through to R and start just going through. Luckily, E is not far down. Once you start with R, I soon get to E, and I come across R-W-E-B-O-K. R-W-E-B-O-K. What is it? It's a small South African gazelle. Gazelle. Wow. You know, we're a running company, we're sports gazelle. That sounds fantastic. Okay, Reba. I put this at the top of my list, and I go back to the, uh, <clears throat> to the guy in Manchester. <clears throat> and I say, look, here's your 10 names that you wanted me to, but we need this one, Reba. And he said, okay, right. I said, we've got to be in love with that name. You know, this is our business. It's got to, you know, it's, it's emotional. We, we've got to have it. You know, we've got to believe in it. You know, just picking a name and any old name wouldn't work. However, he put it to the registrar, and it's the only one that came through clear. All the others had some sort of little problems with them. Okay, we could probably have gone through some of the problems, but this one came clear. Reba. However, the registrar came and <clears throat> said, Yes, you can have Reebok, but it's got to be in Part B of the register. What do you mean Part B of the register? 
He said, well, if somebody wants to make shoes out of Reebok skin, we can't stop them. Well, you know, okay, fair enough. Because <clears throat> 20 years later, he came back and said, we moved Reebok from the B section to the A section. Because now everybody knows that Reebok is a sports shoe. It's no longer an animal. You denote the survivorship of Reebok to a luck at times. One of those moments is when you registered Reebok as a global brand before it was global with Derek Waller, I believe. Tell me more about that. Uh, <clears throat> Derek, yes. Derek was another stroke of luck, quite an unusual man, um, a very serious man. And uh, he had worked for Pilkington's and he had done the float glass agreements all around the world because Pilkington's invented <clears throat> float glass glass that we know today, but they, they invented how to do that. So we did the float glass around the world, which was useful for me, because uh, although I didn't know it at the time, we would require to uh, sort of register Reebok and to have agreements for distribution around the world. <clears throat> but uh, yes, on, on this occasion, um, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> excuse me, what had happened is that registering the name costs a lot of money. Um, and we didn't realize how much money it would cost. And we registered, I think we registered for UK, Europe, Japan, and USA. And unfortunately, we, as I said, we couldn't afford to buy Mercury name. <clears throat> really, we couldn't afford to register Reebok. <clears throat> but that's when, of course, the bills came through from uh, Wilson, Good and, uh, and Ellis. And okay, you know, they send them through and I put them off and said, look, you know, would you accept some post-dated checks or, uh, you know, can we, can we go another, give us 60 days? <clears throat> and unfortunately, and, and I, I still to this day don't know really why, why they did what they did, but they, they decided to bring us into a, a winding up order. They, they set a winding up order against the company. And uh, I received a piece of paper and Okay, what's the winding up order? I don't know. So I go across the road to our accountant and say, look, Peter, uh, this winding up, what does it mean? And he said, well, what it means, you have to fight it and fight it very quickly. Otherwise, you'll just be out of business. And this is where Derek Waller came in. Because he, he'd been to a, a, a different court case, um, Peter and Derek Waller had been defending. And Peter said, you need to see this guy because we, we went on a case and we had three aces and he got a draw. <laughs> he said, I don't know how this man managed to get a draw to that because we, we were absolutely going to win the case. He said, so go and see him because he obviously knows this stuff. And I did. And Derek was a very unusual man. You could ask him a question and he would just sit there. He, almost for a minute, he would just sit there. <clears throat> you could see something churning over, but you'd be started thinking. <laughs> and then he said, okay. And that was about it. Okay. <clears throat> he wouldn't tell you why or anything. Okay. And he would then take the case and, and he, uh, he, got it, he got it thrown out. He got that thrown out. So we, we lived, we survived that particular one. Uh, 
and after that, he did become a good friend, and we did do uh, distribution agreements uh, all around the world. But yes, Derek Weller did uh, did keep us alive on that occasion. Um, so we become we become Reebok. Excuse me. <clears throat> But of course, apart from challenging our, our name, we'd only been about four years into the business when we got a letter. A letter from Adidas. Adidas. Ooh. And the fact is that we had two stripes and a T-bar on the side of our shoes. That was our silhouette. And of course, Adidas have three stripes. And Adidas considered that our two stripes and a T-bar infringed the three stripes. Well, <clears throat> not, not only were we sort of, well, what do you do about that? But we were, we're delighted. I did this. I thought, we, we'd got them writing letters to us. What is this? Yeah, they recognized us. Fantastic. So as with the name, it was much easier to think, oh, can we change our silhouette? And that's what you've got on your T-shirt now. That was the silhouette we, we changed to. So we changed to the arrow with the down stripe. <clears throat> By, and you know, again, it was that look. Was it meant to be that uh, they would write and say, no, that, you can't have that? So we changed and we changed to something which is certainly more, uh, let's say, visible. More, you know, it defines Reebok now. That's, now that, that is Reebok's uh, uh, silhouette and signature, if you will. So. <clears throat> Apart from the many problems that, that we were to face, it was a question of, right, we're doing well, we're in a running business. And I used, yeah, I had to take my own medicine, and that is I told my father and uncle, we need somebody on the road, we need to go selling. So I thought, okay, I will go selling. I'd had one or two uh, agents that done quite okay for us, but uh, I decided I would go on the road. And I went and I'm calling on retailers. And some retailers knew us, some retailers are buying Reebok, but a lot weren't. And I present myself and said, Reebok. And you know, the guy would look at me and say, Who? Reebok. Oh, who's that? No, no idea. Um, so I had to explain Reebok, running shoes, you know, we come from this, from 1900s, Fosters and whatever. And, you know, we're the new Reebok company, and they uh, would look quite a few of them. So I've got Adidas, and I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? Good question. Why did he need Reebok? He didn't. He wasn't missing Reebok. So why did he need it? And that, that was a bit of alarm bells for me. I don't know. He doesn't need Reebok. I've got to find my customer, and my customer was the athlete. And uh, we used to go around to uh, events, running events, and we'd sell shoes out of the back of the car. And uh, <clears throat> that was okay. But then it struck me that these are my customers. These are the people I need to sell to. And again, maybe a stroke of luck or not, but the athletics, we had the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association, and they brought out a handbook. And in that handbook with two, 300 names, of the secretaries of every club in the country, names and address. <clears throat> so what does that mean? Letters. I just wrote letters. Everybody got a letter and offering them 15% discount 
if they wanted to buy our shoes. And if uh, they could either put that 15% to club funds or the secretary could keep it, or you could find an agent in the club, somebody who'd like to act on our behalf, and they could have the 15%. I got 150, almost 200 agents. Brilliant. We started to expand. Our shoes were selling. Fantastic. But then, okay, we can only grow so far. And uh, to me, I knew America was the big market for athletics. Every college, every university had coach. And coach was God. You could, you could go to university with a, an athletic scholarship. So I, I knew that that was a bigger market. In fact, Foster's were actually selling into, uh, into America in the 1940s, late 40s. Frank Ryan, that's the deal that your dad and uncle passed up on when, when they first started, but then you reinvented or tried to reinvent that deal later on. Frank Ryan. Uh, at Yale University, right? That's right. Frank Ryan, what they were doing with Foster's, they were taking the shoes again from the 1930s, the hand-sewn turn shoe, which is a very nice shoe. It was brilliant, but of course, it cost too much to make. It was a very expensive shoe. We, you needed to uh, have, have a shoe which would be right for the market uh, and also the volume because hand-sewn shoes, you, I, I think one person could do about, I should say, three or four pairs a day. That's it. Hand-sewing the shoe together. So when we left, we didn't do any hand-sewing. We were straight into machine operations and whatever. And... Uh, Yes, Foster's have been selling about 200 pairs a month to Yale University, and Yale, they were distributing in America. And I had met Frank Ryan, and when he came over, he used to come over to Ireland. He, obviously, Irish descent, so we would come over to Ireland, and uh, uh, I went to Ireland and we spent uh, two or three days with him. In fact, he tried to get us to move our company to Ireland. Um, and a lot of questions were asked, uh, but we never moved. We, we didn't. Do you all remember at this point, you said that Frank turned up in a big Cadillac in the streets of Dublin and you felt like a, a rock star for a couple of days. Was that your first taste of what successful entrepreneurship might feel and look like? <laughs> I, think the, I think the biggest thing about the Cadillac was that uh, he, he obviously was quite well off. I think his family had invented the ticket. So... <laughs> As such, they, they were obviously making a lot of money on royalties in America. And he used to come across with his wife um, every summer to stay in just outside Dublin, Dunleary, I think it is. And he used to bring his Cadillac as well. Well, I mean, when I went, and he picked us up from the airport and drove us downtown in this Cadillac. The thing is that uh, it was made for America. You know what I mean? And I think they call it New York Parking. Because when there wasn't enough space for him to park the car, he would just come in and push the car up. Then he'd reverse and push the other one backwards <laughs> just to make space for this monster. And it was, just, it was a, uh, a sports car, so the, the, lid, the roof came down. So it was only two doors. I mean, and the doors were so wide that you opened the door and it would totally take the pavement. So everybody had to stop. Nobody could come past once this door was open. It's massive, absolutely massive. And uh, yes, I, I do remember it was a, you, know, you think it was so out of place, you know, in these sort of 
winding roads in uh, in Ireland just outside Dublin and you know it bounced about and, and he he rented this sort of almost like a, a mansion and we drove up to the gates and he got out and he said Joe do you want to drive it up the uh, <laughs> up the drive oh right why not <laughs> so that was it <clears throat> I had the pleasure of driving this up the drive to, to the mansion he wouldn't let me drive it through the, the streets of Ireland but yeah up there yeah, it was great, but you know the American cars are so like like driving on sponges. You know, so bouncy. The, you know. So that was quite incredible. Yeah, I, I enjoyed doing that. And uh, but nothing came of our I think our time with Frank. Uh, I think he was probably a bit too old to start another business with Reebok. Uh, what he'd done, he'd done with his friend Bob G and Jack. They were both coaches at Yale. Uh, I think Frank Ryan, I think, was the mild champion at one point in his life of uh, America. So uh, quite a good connection. But I mean, what it does, it comes back to the fact that I knew America was really where we should be. And in 1968, to 1968, got this, uh, I'm looking through a magazine, and the British government are saying, um, you know, we'd like, we'd like you in the sports industry to export. And there's the NSGA show, which is the National Sporting Goods of America. That goes on in Chicago, the 7th, I think it was 7th of February, Chicago. And uh, if you want to go, we'll pay for your return air first. Uh, we'll, we'll pay for your stand. We'll provide you with a stand there at the NSGA show. And we'll, uh, we'll pay half of your hotel and your, your expenses whilst you're over there. Great. Couldn't really refuse that. Going to do that. So uh, I had a chat with a friend of mine, Bob Brigham. Brigham, it's Alice Brigham Sports. So they're, they're, they're actually an outdoor company. They're still doing very well, actually. Quite a few stores around. And so Bob, Bob Brigham, who was the, was the old... Bob, he was dog. the gentleman that owned the Climbing Boot store, or the Climbing Boot company, sorry, that you ended up partnering with to manufacture his boots. Tell me more about that. <laughs> yes. Bob wanted us to uh, do his FEB. I mean, the company was called F. Ellis Brigham, Fred, Frederick Ellis Brigham, so it was F.E.B. -E Brigham. It's now just called Ellis Brigham's, the, uh, the company. And, and Bob wants this lightweight rock climbing boot. There was, um, uh, there was one in France, I think it was, was it called E.B. It was a, a boot made in France, but it, it was quite expensive. And whilst it was good, you know, Bob wanted one that uh, we could probably get the price down a bit and one that he could put his own name on. So we were making for Bob <clears throat> this FEB uh, rock climbing boot. And uh, Bob was happy enough to come along with me and do the uh, NSGA show. Uh, and we sold some of his boots at the shop. But, <clears throat> you know, we didn't sell any of my, uh, my shoes. And then, you know, they were well accepted. The guys coming along and saying, wow, I love your shoes, great stuff. Where do I get them from? And I say, England. <laughs> uh, England? Is that New England? No, no, it's England. It's across the water. Oh, yeah. And that was the one thing that put them off. The, the, the thought of importing just didn't work for the sports stores. I mean, surprisingly enough, Bob sold some of his boots. So the, I, I think the, the outdoor companies are the outdoor shops. They were used to importing skis, ski boots from Europe. They were used to that. So to import a, a boot, uh, a rock climbing boot, I don't think was a big problem. But the sports stores, no, they, they were not used to importing. So they couldn't import. And this is 1968.
Was this the partnership with Lauren Sports, the distribution company, or was this before? Where did this happen in the story, Joe? Lauren Sports was there before because with Lauren Sports, <clears throat> a friend of mine, he was he was the sales, he was head sales, sales manager there, really, really good salesman. <clears throat> and we talked, and Lauren Sports only made boots. They made football boots and rugby boots. Um, so their season, you know, they would sell in August, end of July, or they would sell all their boots in. They would have a reselling time somewhere around Christmas. Then they wouldn't really sell much until again the next August. But all they made was was boots. But we were making training shoes, running shoes. You know, we were making a, a different uh, sports shoe to them. Um, so he said, "Why don't why don't we take over your sales?" And that to me sounded great. Why not? It would save me the problem of having to do the selling, um, and I could then concentrate on export. On expanding the business, and I, and I could look, I could look at America. So that's when Lawrence Sports came in, and so Lawrence Lawrence were then doing our distribution uh, all through the UK. They, they could also <clears throat> distribute it abroad, but uh, they didn't really get into that. And, and it, we were only two years down that agreement when, as you've read the book, a series of events. Uh, Harold Lawrence, who was the head of the business, he decided he was retiring. He was in his 70s. He was retiring, <clears throat> and his son-in-law came in. And his son-in-law knew nothing about the business, nothing, and uh, made a disastrous uh, decision that they would change from the traditional way of uh, sticking and sewing the sole onto the boot and, and go for this absolutely new method of injection molding. All, all, all football boots are injection molded now. And that was definitely the way to go. <clears throat> the trouble is, he just threw out all the machinery that used to put the soles on, and they built this nice little area <clears throat> for this new machine to come in. Two things. One, it didn't arrive in time. By the, by the time it arrived, it was getting too late for the season. And the second thing is, they built the building too small. So when they put, they couldn't get around the machine. <clears throat> so what they had to do is they had to increase the size of the building. By this time, they had lost all the sales. So whilst they sold all the product, they had no product to sell because they couldn't put the sole onto the shoe <clears throat> and they'd thrown away all their old machinery. So they went out of business. And unfortunately, they were selling our shoes as well, which meant that uh, not, since they couldn't supply the, the football boots, people were not buying the running shoes and the training shoes. And uh, you could see that the business was going out. And yeah, I, I, had to, uh, I had to hire a van and quickly go down to Northampton, collect all the shoes and bring them back. And that, that was it's quite an adventure, really, because they were owing us a lot of money, thousands of pounds in those days. I mean, maybe only 5,000 pounds, but it was a lot of money in those days. And if our bank manager had found out we'd suddenly lost all our sales, we would be in trouble. Mr. Stoppard, you probably uh, read that bit. Oh. So it was a question of what do we do? So we brought all these shoes back to the, the factory 
And then everybody, we advertised locally, we went all to schools and we were selling to schools directly, anything to sell the shoes. And, and it worked. So many people selling all over the place. Brilliant. We were selling these shoes. And we were getting more money for the shoes than we were getting from Loris. So, <laughs> so brilliant. All of a sudden, we were cash rich. All of a sudden, the cash was coming in. Fantastic. So we got over that as a problem. And it, it, was, it was a bit late, maybe 12 months later, that I found another distributor, Carter Pocock, because Carter Pocock had been seeing how good we were doing. And, of course, they saw that uh, Lawrence had gone out of business. We needed another distributor in the UK. And so they just became our UK distributor. And, and it gave me the time then to spend uh, on looking abroad. And as I say, um, we, probably during the 60s, uh, after I'd first been to America, but as I was again saying, it was 1979 before we actually got a distributor in America. And, you know, what had been happening? Well, the other bit of luck that had been happening is that late in the 60s, um, Bob Anderson set up his magazine, Runner's World. And it was just one single sheet. But running was starting to grow. People were going out, putting training shoes on, and going running. And then along came 5K events, 10K events, half marathons. So running was started to really, in the 70s, it absolutely exploded as a category in America. So this was going, and of course, who came along then? Nike. This was brilliant for Nike because this is what they were into running. So between Runner's World and Nike, the running market absolutely grew tremendously. And it grew that much that uh, Bob Anderson, his magazine started in a single page, became a nice, glossy, big magazine. And of course, well, he started to think he could, he could tell everybody what was a good shoe. So they started to rate running shoes. And they, they had a... They had some devices that they would put running shoes through to make sure they, they were good for supination and uh, what cushioning, heel strength, all these different things that they decided. And it was during the mid, uh, mid to late 70s that he was saying, this is the number one shoe. Well, that was brilliant for, I think it was Nike, but Nike came number one shoe in August. It took them until after December to get the production that the demand created because you had a million runners, at least a million people in America, all of a sudden wanted the number one shoe. You, couldn't, you can't produce that. You can't get the production up to find those shoes in that time. So by the time they got production running and retailers had got the stores, it was almost ready for the next, uh, next edition and the next number one shoe. So the retailers were absolutely wild. You know, they, they were getting, first of all, they couldn't get the stock. Then when they got it, they were being left with stock. But they knew, once the new number one came in, that was it. So Bob Anderson changed from rating shoes as number one, two, three, four, to a star rating. Top of it would be five stars. If you had a five-star shoe, right. And that meant you could have three, four shoes rated five stars. That was my opportunity. What we needed was a five-star shoe. That would be the hook that would get somebody in America. The Americans would see that we, we had a product. It would then mean it would probably get a distributor. 
So I designed Aztec. Aztec, you may know Aztec, you may not know Aztec, but Aztec was our, was our shoe. <clears throat> and we designed this for, to begin with, for the, uh, well, it, it was to get a five-star shoe, but we tested it out at the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton. And we, <clears throat> we actually made a gold range, Aztec, um, <clears throat> Midas was a racing shoe, and Inca. Inca was a track spike. So we had the gold range tested out in Edmonton, and we, we got a lot of gold medals. Brilliant. So by the time of February 1979 came along, I had the shoes, and we had them on display in the NSGA show. And we got a lot of interest. Amongst, amongst the interest was Kmart. Kmart were big wholesalers in America. And uh, the guy said, well, we'll, we'll take 25,000 pairs. Oh, right. Hmm. Fine. We knew if we got a five-star shoe, we knew that we would need help. <clears throat> because 25,000 pairs of shoes would take our factory, our small factory, six months to make that. We, we couldn't take six months to make it. So we got barter. Again, the man who'd worked, Shaq, who'd been at Lawrence, he moved to barter. And barter had just set up a sports division. <clears throat> so they, they would help us. They would make the shoes for us. Right, good. But then um, came out and said, but we need a better price. Oh. Well, again, we knew that making shoes in the UK, <clears throat> we couldn't make them at the price. You could make them in Korea or Japan. So we'd already been talking to people in South Korea. So, with a, yeah, well, if we get a five-star, we know, we know what to do, we know where to go, and we can do it. Fine. And also along came Paul Fireman. <clears throat> Paul Feynman, he, his brother, and his brother-in-law, they, they were running a small uh, wholesalers in Boston called Boston Camping. They were doing, obviously, tents, all your camping gear, um, fishing rods, you know, all the bits and pieces for the outdoor market. <clears throat> okay, that's the outdoor market as against the sports market that we were in. But Paul, he said, well, you know, I'd love to be a distributor. I think he was a bit fed up with just working with his brother and his brother-in-law, and they just did the same thing year after year, and he was a bit sort of, uh, well, yeah, I'd love to be your distributor. Okay. What do you think Paul Fireman saw in the brand or in Reebok at that moment, or do you think he saw more in the industry and the potential of running in athletics? Well, I don't know that he particularly saw something exactly in Reebok. What he did see is that the running market was really growing. <clears throat> you know, that was the business in in. It, it, it was expanding that rapidly, really expanding. And, it, and he saw that he needed to change rather than keep on selling in the outdoor market. Yeah, he, he loved the idea of uh, picking up a shoe that they could, they could run with in this expanding market. That would be brilliant. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so Paul said, but the only thing is, of course, right, you're advertised in Runners World, but really what we need is a five-star shoe. Come, come on, Paul. This is, this is it. Look, this is Aztec. Okay, we're only in February. Shoe ratings don't come out till uh, August. This is going to be a five-star shoe. Ah, okay. <clears throat> Are you sure? I said, well, I'm as sure as I can be that this will get five stars. He said, well, if we get five stars, I'm in. Okay, Paul. So a bit of time between February and August, and I'd been... I think I'd been backwards and forwards to the States to, to meet up with Kmart and 
uh, Paul again, before, I think it was the last week in July when the August edition came out for the uh, for Runners World. And I got on the phone, it was about midday when I got on the phone to Paul, which is 7 a.m. in Boston. So Paul was a bit sort of still just getting out of bed. And I said, Paul, just nip down to the, uh, uh, to the local kiosk and get the uh, Runners World. It's, it's, it's out today, it must be. Right. It was an, an hour later. <clears throat> Paul phoned me back. Joe, Aztec, five stars. Ah, oh, brilliant. That was it. That was a moment then. Five stars, brilliant. He said, but not only did Aztec get five stars, Midas and Inca also got five stars in their own categories. Wow. So we had three five-star shoes. That was the answer. <clears throat> and getting those five-star shoes, Paul was on board. So that was the start. And running, well, it was obvious. The difficulty, we didn't get shoes until, well, until two, six months to get the shoes onto the market. But once we got on there, we got the five stars and we were, we were really running. I asked you, what do you think Paul Fireman saw in Reebok? But more importantly, what did you see in Paul Fireman that made you think I could partner with him? I mean, he was in the outdoor goods market before before partnering with you. Was that not quite risky? What did you see in him? Well, as far as I was concerned, what's there for me is somebody who was willing to do this. He had a business. Uh, I'd had at least six failed attempts between 1968 and 1979. <clears throat> I'd had all these different people trying, doing the best, but we didn't have the hook. We didn't have that five-star shoe. That's something where there would be a demand. Yeah, it's hard to sell a product cold. You're saying, look, this is a good product. Yeah, but you need something else. And... That, that was the five-star hook where people already saw, well, we already have a winning shoe. This must be a good shoe. So <clears throat> that meant that people wanted to buy the shoe. And that's, that's the difference. And that's why Paul wanted a five-star shoe. He knew that just selling a shoe would be difficult, and particularly in those days when uh, with runners world around, <clears throat> There's Nike, New Balance, Zitonic, Sacconi. <coughs> there was no lack of shoes on the market. There were plenty of shoes around there. <clears throat> but a five-star shoe, well, you know, that, would, that would be the attraction. So it wasn't particularly with Paul, although Paul did have a business, which is good, because if, if you've got a business, at least you know, you, you've got the entry into the market, you know, you know how to sell and word sell. However, Boston Camping, of course, was the outdoor business not the sports business. And uh, that didn't worry me. But when I, when I next went across after Paul had said, yes, I'm doing it, he'd already closed down Boston Camping. <laughs> they closed it completely. <clears throat> and I thought, well, I thought he was a bit sort of tired of this business. But I thought they would just bolt it on and it would become an extra. No. His brother went to make uh, wallets, we had Velcro, so they snap wallets, I think, at that time. And talking about now, the 1970s, just about, there was crazy snap wallets. Were good. His, his brother-in-law opened a second-hand car lot, Terry. Terry went to do the second-hand car lot, and Paul was on his own. He would do rebound. Paul Fireman remortgaged his house for finance at this moment in time, didn't he? 
did that show commitment to the Reebok brand? Was it at this point where he did that? Um, around about that point, not at the early point. At the early point, he didn't need to, but um, the problem is with success. Success means your business is growing. For a growing business, you need money. You need money. Um, with um, In the early days when Barter started to produce the product for us, Barter gave a credit line. So Paul could get the shoes, start selling them before he needed to pay. Um, when Barter, of course, the product was, you read the book, the product did let us down a bit, plus they were the wrong price. So, but Paul managed to get 20,000 pairs, and because they were bad, and they weren't all that bad. We knew there were problems with collapsing. We knew there were problems that changed the design slightly. But Paul didn't pay for them. He said, no, you can have them back, but I'm not paying for them. Well, Barter didn't want them back. And I said, well, if Barter, if you get them back, you've just got to destroy them because you can't, you can't sell them. They've got our name on them. So Paul was left with the shoes, and he was still selling the shoes. So where he had a problem, where somebody complained, or where somebody had a problem with the shoe, he would just replace it. Which meant at that point, he could survive and he could make some money because he wasn't paying for anything. But when you go to the Far East, when you go to South Korea, you have to put up a letter of credit, which means you have to have the money or your bank is happy to lend you the money. But the South Korean people don't take any chances on giving you the product and hoping you'll pay. So that doesn't happen. So that's when you need money. And that's when you need to give the bank security. <laughs> and that would be Paul Fireman's house in, in the early days. Um, but it started to expand faster than that. It was really expanding. Um, and of course, the next expansion, because running was doing brilliant, but there was this guy, Arnold Martinez. Arnold, Cuban by origin, lived in LA, and uh, he's a tech rep. Because he was a good runner himself. He had, he, had, he had visions of possibly doing the Olympics as an American. Um, but his wife, Frankie, was coming back with her girlfriends, full of, it, full of this aerobics. This aerobics. What's this aerobics? Arnold's talking to Frankie. And Frankie said, well, it's great. We're exercising to music. Right? And it's that good? Yeah. It's brilliant. So Arnold said, I'm coming down to your next uh, class and I'll have a look. That he did. Went down to the next class. The instructor, she, she's wearing training shoes, racing, running shoes or training shoes. And the uh, half of the class were the same shoe. The other half, no shoes at all. Uh, now that was another lucky light bulb moment. This was time for Arnold. Arnold thought, why don't we make them a special, lovely, soft, glove leather shoe, cushioned, just like a running shoe? Why don't we do that especially? Great. Off he went up to Paul Feynman in Boston. And <laughs> this great idea, wonderful. What are they doing down there in L.A.? And Paul said, come on. We're doing great with running. Absolutely great. Why do we want to start playing around with another shoe? for a few girls doing some dancing down there in L.A. No, no, no. But Arnold wasn't put off, though. Arnold was fairly convinced this was going to be big. So off he went round to the back door, and uh, he met up with the production people. 
They say, look, guys, just 200 pairs. Get me 200 pairs of this shoe. Glove leather upper, uh, nice and soft, made for a woman's foot, which meant it was quite narrow because the American woman's foot is quite narrow compared to most other around the world. We had to change that later. Okay, they did that. So they gave him these 200 pairs of shoes and he gave them to instructors. And I suppose that's the end of the story because it just took off like wildfire. Being down in LA, the girls just loved it. Okay, those first shoes were not good. They were made from glove leather and glove leather was far too thin to work on it and make it work as a shoe. We cured that in about three months. Had it been in the UK or many other countries, we would have been in some serious trouble because they wouldn't have gone out and bought another shoe. But down there in LA, they didn't care. So it lasted three, four weeks or whatever. We'll go and buy another pair of shoes. And they did. So that was a great thing. And then you've got Jane Fonda using them in her videos. But Joe, the freestyle Reebok shoe was more than just a trend. Aerobics was more than just a trend. It was a moment of female empowerment because the shoe market for women was misrepresented by Nike and Adidas before and Adidas and Nike neglected this, whereas Reebok embarked on this trend and it really set them up for future success, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the, the thing was that everybody knew Nike in America. Everybody knew Adidas. But the, only the running fraternity that knew the new Reebok. And so when this shoe appeared down there in LA and they saw this nice white shoe with Reebok on the side and the Union Jack, beautiful little bit of color there. Wow. All of a sudden Reebok became a woman's shoe. We're not, we're not Nike, we're not Adidas, we're not male, we're not sweaty. This was for women. And that is a big attraction. And Adidas, Nike, and all the others just sat back and said, it's, it's just a fad, it's a phase, it's just something, it'll be gone in no time. However, that next year, we grew from a $9 million company to a $30 million company, $90 million, $300 million, $900 million. That, in successive years, was the growth of Reebok. Absolutely incredible. And by that time, we, we were becoming global. Because <clears throat> what had happened in America, suddenly everybody wanted it. And so that was a tremendous growth. And Okay, two problems there. How do you supply that amount of product, that growth? How do you supply it? Where do you get that product from? Luckily, again, we got this bit of luck. Nike, Nike had just hit the wall. They just got to a point where they were losing business and they had to shut down at least two factories in South Korea. Great. Just right for Reebok. Reebok could take that production. If it hadn't been there, we'd have been starving our factory, starving our business because we couldn't have made the shoes. Then how do you pay for that? You know, I mean, that's a problem. Not as big as, the, not as, big as how do you get them, but how do you pay for it? Fortunately, um, we were in contact, Steve, uh, Paul was in contact with uh, Stephen Rubin. Stephen Rubin, Asco, Pentland. Um, his Asco business, Stephen Rubin's Asco business, was actually sourcing product. That's what he did. He sourced it for all the British shoe corporations out of the Far East, and he wanted Paul to do that same in America. So that's how Paul became connected, because if Paul could 
go to all the big Sears and all the big stores in America and do its own brands. That was, that was what Stephen was doing. And Stephen gave uh, Paul an open letter of credit. You know, buy what you want. I don't care. You know, do it. Paul just wouldn't sell to any of these other people. He wouldn't go around looking for shoes for Stephen. He was Reebok and he stayed with Reebok. But the Reebok business just grew. And in no time at all, Paul was owing Stephen $20 million. Stephen Rubin was your financier, right? How did you feel giving away such a large stake? I'm sure it was 55% in the business or perhaps your identity to, to grow Reebok. Was this hard for you? Well, I, I think you've got to be aware of when you've, uh, when you've reached a point to step aside or at least to allow others in. And if you don't do that, then I think your business will suffer. You've got to see, as I said, this wasn't about Jeff and Joe Foster, how good we can be. This was about Reebok. We needed Reebok. This was an opportunity for Reebok. And so you've got to look at it and make a decision. And you make that decision and, uh, yeah. People say, you know, do you regret certain decisions? And uh, all I can say is, by the time I left, which was the end of 1989, Reebok was number one. We'd overtaken Nike, we'd overtaken Adidas. And we were the number one sports brand globally. How can you regret that? <laughs> it worked. It worked. And by the end of 1989, we were so big. We were a $4 billion business by then. And uh, for me, the excitement had stopped then. Now, now we're full of lawyers. Uh, we're full of accountants. And, and we're full of people who are used to selling vast quantities and how to package them, how to sell them, how to do the buy-in. wasn't my company at that time. So it was time for me to retire, stand back. But as I say, this is a bit like uh, the Eagles in Hotel California. Yeah, you can, you check, can check out, out but you can, but never, you can never leave. leave. <laughs> <laughs> and that has been it for me because I've been being called back time and time again. Oh, Joe, what's this? What's this? And you know, how did this happen? So, uh, you know, my connection is, is still there. What year was it you gave your remaining shareholding to Paul Fireman? Or was it Steve Ribbon under Pentland Financier? I, I never sold to Paul Fireman. I, I sold to Pentland. That's when you took your role as head of Reebok International and Reebok Rest of the World. That's when you gave up your global oversight, right? I took over it. Yeah, I took over international. And we're talking about 84, 85. And then, I, then I, the agreement was I would... The rest of the world was mine. And I used to say to Paul, Paul, you look after America because the bigger and better you can get in America, the easier it will be for me to do the rest of the world. And it was. And we had that agreement. Anytime anybody asked Paul, Paul, how can we get these in Poland or whatever, he'd just say, go see Joe. So, so it was, and I could take that on. Uh, and the, it allowed the company to expand. And, and I think... But this happens to probably many companies. You've got to be careful how you expand your business because you've got to make sure you, 
you stay with what makes it grow. You stay with the thing, that, that, that core business. And that core business was America. Uh, and it was great. The fact that Americans, they were just looking after America. They would look after Canada and Mexico as well because they were bordering countries. But the rest of the world, that was for me. So I was all over the world. For 10 years, I just traveled nonstop. It was going around the world probably about three, four times a year. I would go around the world just meeting, uh, either working with some people, bringing more people on. And I think I put on another 30 countries. So it was quite a busy time. Do you have any particular highlights that you can share about your travels abroad? I know you, you've probably visited every country in the world, but is there one significant story that stands out above them all? In my travels abroad, well, I've got many of those. I mean, and, and if you've read the book, of course, you've read my uh, Around the World in 80 Days or Less trip. That, that, I mean, that was a remarkable trip, and I met a lot of things and did a lot of things. And you know, to be in Los Angeles and you know, be invited to Ginger Rogers' old house. You probably don't even know Ginger Rogers, but uh, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, in my day, they were, they were massive. And uh, you know, to go and stand upon a studio or dance floor was, was incredible. To go through that house, uh, to look at the scene, you know, she had two big picture windows that you could overlook Los Angeles. And this mural painted on the wall were the visits that she loved to visit and they were all down there in Los Angeles Is that painting the town red and it was all done in red fantastic I mean those are memories and this is the one thing that uh, if I do regret anything is that people were not traveling with me you know on so many of those uh, trips I was on my own I had to make a decision we didn't have computers we didn't have mobile phones I mean the best thing I probably had was a calculator and that was it otherwise it would in those early days, it was just a bunch of uh, American Express traveler's checks. That's the only way I could get around. Um, I mean, like, today now, technology is just oh, fantastic. What we are doing today now, we've done maybe 50 or 60 of these over the last three or four months. And yeah, you, you're, is it Glasgow you're in? I know you're in Scotland. Yeah, near, near Glasgow in here, sure. Yeah, but you know, that's not too far. We're in the middle of France. Okay. But yesterday, you know, we're talking to America and I can be talking to Australia and we have the same clear picture, the same ability to get together and chat. Um, you know, these things didn't, didn't happen in those days. So it had to be, you know, travel. And if somebody could have been with me on many occasions, it was say, remember when we did this? And, you know, those are fantastic occasions. Like you said, you whizzed around the world in 80 days and Reebok was growing rapidly, but did you ever get the opportunity just to sit still and take it all in? The amazing countries, amazing culture, or the, perhaps the success that you built. How did you reflect on it all? It must have been pretty hard to when, when your world was expanding so quickly, Joe. I don't think at the time I even considered it. I, I think it was a matter of um, there was always the next step waiting. There was a cue of the next step. Which one is it? And so I think you get to the to the end of the road without even thinking, what do we do? How do we do that? You know, I had some tremendous experiences. We, I think we took over, it wasn't Disneyland, what did we take over? Was it? Uh, MGM. MGM Studios. MGM Studios. A bit like Disney. Would you, exactly. Yeah. 
It's not a Disney. It's the MGM part. Yeah. Yeah. The MGM. We just took over the whole thing as a, as a company. Has been, been working so hard, but took it over. So we had one evening with the whole thing to ourselves as a company. I mean, brilliant. All the rides, you could do what you want. You know, the whole thing. So <clears throat> you, you don't you don't consider how these things happen. They just happen. And, you know, they're incredible. But, uh, you know, this, this, is, this is what happened during that journey. And this is why when it came to the end of 1989, okay, I could keep on doing things, but I'm... Really, not part of the business. So, yeah, I'm, I am part, but I'm not. I'm not working on it. It's it's got that big, that yeah. You know, and it was time for me, plenty of time. I needed to get out of the business in order to look back and do that reflection. In fact, I can reflect now more than than I could do it almost any other time. Particularly since writing the book and getting people to come and and talk and want to know what it's about, I can reflect more. I, I sometimes wonder, how did you manage to do that? Yeah. <laughs> Talking about reflection, when you and your brother Jeff first started Mercury or first rebranded as Reebok, and when you closed your eyes, did you, did you envisage growing something as big as Reebok? Like you said, a company with almost four billion pounds worth of revenue with your role, including international travel every week? Well, you know, you have some romantic dreams, some ideas that you're going to grow and going to be big, but really I had no idea. You know, it, it was a matter of what's the next step? How can we do this next? You know, where are we going to? How are we growing? And, and it was really a, it was really trying to keep up with the business. And this is what happened in America. Uh, the demand for the aerobics, the aerobics demand grew so rapidly that it wasn't a matter of the company trying to f figure out where to get the next sales, how to, how to develop the business. It was a matter of how do we keep up with this? Because I can remember sitting with Paul Feynman at one, one point when the business was really, really growing. And uh, Paul saying, Joe, I, I know how to stop this. He said, but if I do, I just don't know how to start it again. So, yeah, that, that was the dilemma of how, you know, trying to satisfy the growth of this business. And probably, probably Reebok grew too fast, if, if anything. You know, it was the fastest growing business ever at that time in America. Absolutely incredible. And maybe it grew too fast. Maybe it didn't give us time to grow enough depth in the company and think about it. Like I said, think about it. No, you're just going. But uh, it was an incredible ride. Uh, and enjoyed it tremendously. Joe, I want to unpick some of your origin story. As a child, were you quiet and observant or a bit of a curiosity-driven disruptor? What were you like? Well, I think in many ways I was quite quiet, but in many other ways also I was a little bit disruptive, a little bit wanting to know a bit more, and not willing to accept where we were, what we were doing all the time. But, you know, in my very young childhood, of course, it was during the war. It was six years during the war. And, uh, you know, you don't think there's anything different in life. That's how life always is for everybody because you, you have no experience of anything else. Um, and you just grow up like a kid. But, you know, if, you, if you're not just happy to, like we say, obey all the time, but question sometimes you know why 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 do this and, and i guess i did question on a few times i did question something some things uh, without a doubt uh, jeff was more rather one to just get on with it and not worry the same when, when we when we set up the company <clears throat> he just wanted to work in the factory 
He was just so happy doing that. He just wanted to do that, run the factory. He didn't want to do any marketing, any sales. He, he didn't want to consider anything else. He was just so happy. In fact, I did the design as well. And he was just happy to produce that design, make it into a product. Uh, and that was Jeff's. So, so Jeff was happy to do that. And I, th and I think in a way, having seen the uh, problem between my father and uncle, I, I think that was really good for us because it meant that uh, I could just get on and do it. We, we never had. We never had a crossword. You know, we, we sat down and we decided things and we did things. And Jeff would more often say, yeah, just get on with it. Do, what, you know, do as you will. He did come to America on... Uh, <clears throat> We did it twice, certainly did America once, and we did LA at that time. I went up to see Bob Anderson in his place, where he did Runner's World. So he did come across, but uh, <clears throat> not in those early days. In those early days, he was just happy for me to just get on with it, <laughs> which we did. Going back on your origin story, Joe, do you think the lack of emotional touch point with your father helped you grow Reebok in the sense that you had no one really to please above you in the, the family hierarchy. I know in my own story, I don't live to satisfy my parents. Do you think that allowed you to be a bit more disruptive, a bit more willing to take risk or uh, rely on chance? Um, well, I think, you know, I think when you're a youngster, I think you always like to please people. But I think if it's, that, if it's, if it's against your, um, if it's against what pleases you, I think you also have to be happy doing that. If, if it's doing things just for the sake of pleasing somebody else, no, you do become disruptive. You do turn away. I turned my back on running because, for me, it didn't work. My father wanted me to be an athlete, a runner, but no. Uh, I, preferred, I preferred to play a game, to a sport, you know, and eventually I played badminton at a reasonable level. Uh, you know, that, that was my sport. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I, I think there's, it was probably, there was probably something in my grandfather that drove him to do what he did, that he did something entirely different, and he was, he was really good at it, which I don't think he passed on to his sons. In some way, I think he developed something. They were just happy to see what he'd done, and I don't think they, I don't think they were challenging enough to say, well, now we can take it on, now we can improve on this, because they didn't. And whether it was because they didn't uh, see eye to eye, they were not friends, I, I don't know. But, but something didn't get passed on. Because when I look at that, uh, that letterhead that we have from the 1920s, and I see what grandfather did, and how he supplied all these football teams, you know, I, I wonder in these days, why, why were we not number one in football? Why how did we let Adidas in? Yeah. Why, why were Foster's not good? The fact that he died in 1933, he was too young. But even when he was young, yeah, you would have thought, well, that must have given his sons an opportunity, young enough. Because during the three years that Jeff and I had come back from doing national service, trying to get my father and uncle to, to do something, uh, my father would say, look, when I am gone, and Bill's gone. This business will be yours. And I used to say, well, Dad, number one, we don't want you to go. That's not the objective. You know, the objective is to get you to go. But this business will be gone before you go. This is the problem. 
And, and I think had we stayed with it for some years, and had we stayed until probably another five, six years, I, I just don't know if we'd have had that spirit. Yeah, I was 23. Jeff was only 25. What could go wrong? You know, you just do these things. Yeah, how can anything happen? No, it doesn't matter. You know, you, you don't have a thought that you might fail. There is no, no such thought. It's, yeah, we're setting up a business. We're, we're going to succeed because we, we're young enough not to have that second thought, not to have that nagging at the back end. Well, what happens? You know, we haven't got too many responsibilities. Okay, I just got married, but, you know, that was it. Did you, you know, again, even my wife was young, so we were young. And, uh, and, and being young, we're just indestructible. You don't, you don't worry about it. When you get a bit older, I think you've got too many things. If you've got children and all the things that go with it, you have those responsibilities. You start to think too much. Joe, you're known as the shoemaker. Even your book's titled it. Um, do you think if you didn't inherit the skills of a shoemaker or grow up in the business of a shoemaker, you would go on to similar success like you've had at Reebok? Do you think entrepreneurship is innate for you? Um, I, I think, I mean, I had, I, I, my education was engineering and uh, I could have gone into the, um, um, to the aerospace business. That, that was certainly an opportunity for me when I was, uh, when I was younger. Um, I did national service and was invited to stay on with the Air Force. And it was a bit of a temptation because there was a promise for a commission and probably to go on to fly in and maybe maybe flying fighters and things like that. Um, I decided against that because you can you see that's only a short term. It's something that, well, yeah, you may do it for 10 years. Then what do you do after 10 years? Whether I thought that deeply, I doubt. But it just didn't. Yeah, you know, I was trying to stay on that. <clears throat> I think had I been in another business, I think, yes, I would have done something. I don't think I would have been happy just going to business, going to work and doing a nine to five or an eight to five job, whatever it was. And that was my life. No, I think I was too inquisitive, too disruptive, if you will, too much in need to... Uh, do something for myself, even if I did it wrong. You know, it didn't matter because if you do it wrong and you realise that, you can put it right. Okay? You know, failure is not a problem. It's just the next step to being successful because you, you learn something from it. And I learned a lot on my, on my way through trying to get distribution in America. I learned an awful lot. And eventually we got there. But you, you, have, to have, you have to have a brain which can think in front, you can think up. How can we do? This? You're not always right, <laughs> but you know if you've got that sort of brain that wants to think rather than just wants to stand there and do things. Okay, and I know it's very tempting. I, I get very tempted that if, I, if I've got a, a job to do, it's nice to just stand there and do the job. Just get on with some. Doesn't require any thinking. But then you get to the point where I can't do this all the time. I must change something, you know, this needs, you know, you need something different here. And, uh, you know, my wife now often says I should have been an architect because I love designing 
inside of properties and designing properties. I think we've had about four or five where we've just redesigned it totally. And yeah, and I enjoy that. So I suppose there's always been a bit of a pleasure to look at something and look at something differently. I remember one of your first very employees was an apprentice. I mean, I'm an apprentice at KPMG, the firm I work for. Do you think if you were to start Reebok today, you would recruit more of your workforce from apprenticeships? What's your views on it? Well, I, I think you have to encourage uh, young people to do what you're doing, and that is to think. Uh, and I think with an apprenticeship, that, that gives you some skills. You, you learn some skills. Um, but, I mean, the number of people who have probably left my employer because they want to do something else, I would always encourage that. Yeah, encourage people. But also when, when you bring people into your company, it, it's good for them to share. People need to share that ownership, as it were. And if people um, do share the ownership, they do you know, have ideas, they do work hard, and they do um, well, they, they add value to your company. So, again, it's not just taking people on for nine to a five. Yeah. An apprenticeship, fine, you learn some things, but then, you know, you've got to be able to give to a company and you, you want those people. Employing people, it's better to employ people who come to you and say, can, can I do this or I'd like to do that, as against going and saying, we need somebody to do this. Yeah, yeah. I say, in fact, I did spend some time in an accountant's office and just ticking off whatever. No, I could never be an accountant. That wasn't for me. You know, I couldn't just do that. I needed to do something which was um, more progressive and you know, something where, where you found a result. That's interesting, Joe. It's not for everyone. I moved from accounting to management consulting. A question I have for you. Do you believe in luck or do you create your own luck? Or a bit of both? It's a bit of both. You do create your own luck. I think you, 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 the biggest thing you have to begin to recognize is opportunity. Because so many people don't see an opportunity. And by the time they do, it's gone way in the distance. It's gone past. So I think you've got to be able to recognize opportunities. And, uh, and, and I guess there's a, a certain amount of luck that those opportunities arrive at the time that you can see it. That, you know, it's a bit of a two-way street. It's um, <clears throat> when, when we were growing during the 70s, this was the same time that running was growing. We happened to be in running and in, in sports. I, I mean, I can remember companies trying to get into it, big companies, companies like Clark's. Clark's wanted to get into the sports business and they made some sports shoes. But nobody ever, nobody ever looked at Clark's and thought, thought of them as sport. You know, they don't, you, you've got to look at something and you've got to see what that company is. And if you look at Clark's, you, you think more of street shoes, children's shoes. You know, that's where you see Clark's. So it's what your vision is with Reebok. This is why we were lucky when we were growing during that time. There were not too many of us. And we, we were not an offshoot of somebody making ordinary footwear, somebody making street footwear. You know, this wasn't just a side. This, this was us. We were. Reebok, we were the sports business. And when people looked at us, they saw us as an athletic shoe business. They didn't see us, you can look at Barter, and possibly you don't know much about Barter, but Barter are the biggest footwear manufacturers worldwide, globally. You know, they're just incredibly big. 
Um, but they, they just make shoes, they just make street shoes. And so for them to go into football or anything else, they need, you know, they need it under another name. They did try under another name, but unfortunately, they're driven by a parent company, which is really a football company, not a sports company. We, we used to make shoes, athletic shoes, which put us into the business of making footwear. But our life, where we sold these shoes, wasn't on the street for people to walk in. This was a sport. You know, people were in the sport. So we were in two, two industries. We were manufacturing, but we were also in the sports industry. Yeah? And that's what drove our, our manufacturing. So we were always known as, as a sports company. And uh, it, there were so many. I mean, Coggins, a lot of people, Sim, Simlam, a lot of people who sort of in, in my early days made sports footwear, but they were always somewhat associated to a company doing something else, you know, that made either heavy footwear for mining boots, yeah, army boots, stuff like that. And so it's what you, what you recognised as. We were always recognised in, in that sport way. I remember hearing you say, Joe, that you wanted to build Reebok, not the brand of Joe Foster. In 2021, do you think that's still still just as important or should we focus more on building a personal brand if we're an entrepreneur, especially considering the likes of social media? Well, I think with social media now, you get that relationship a lot easier. You, know, you, like, you only need to look at the Americans and... Uh, Musk and Bezos, and you, you relate to big industries that they have grown, and then who grew this? You know, and like I say, we, we've now got uh, social media to such an extent now that you do need a personality there. They do need to talk about people. Um, yeah, so it's totally different now. You know, to set up today, <clears throat> the first thing you have to look at is technology. It's uh, I. It's, since writing the book, it's amazing how many people sort of come and ask questions and you, you, you talk to people. Um, even some of the old Reebok people have come out of the woodwork and you know, we're, we're talking again uh, about different things. So it, it's, it's quite surprising now what's happened with not just writing that, but now we, we have this, we have computers, we have Zoom. You know, and this, this has moved forward 10 years. If we hadn't have had COVID, you know, we wouldn't have had Zoom to this extent. It, it, it's, it's moved it forward 10 years. And, okay, everything's going to settle back down again in maybe 6, 12 months' time. We're going to go, to a certain extent, back. But this is here forever now. You know, this, this is how people will talk to each other. We've got used to it. Uh, you, you don't need to do what I did, and that's jump on a plane uh, and fly five or 8,000 miles. Uh, to, to meet with people and then have to make that decision. If your role of head of Reebok International and the rest of the world existed today, it would probably look much like this, this podcast on Zoom, connecting with people in different countries at any given moment. Do you think it would stifle your passion for that role considering you love traveling so much? However, how do you think it would impact efficiency because you wouldn't have to spend eight to ten hours on a Luxurious first-class flight. How do you think that role would look now in today's digital environment? That's hard to say because uh, I'm now much older than you. I mean, it would look like you, a young man. <laughs> you have to be young to be an entrepreneur to do these things. 
um, I can only reflect. So, uh, and and to probably take seventy years off me, uh, you know, you think you'd just be a kid then of uh, fifteen, <laughs> and you're growing up in this world. I would know every button to press, wouldn't I? I would know everywhere to go. Uh, right now, when something happens, I have to shout, Julie, Julie, you know, look, I've lost this, I've, what's happened? Yeah, but if I was a kid of 15, I'd, you know, I'd be turning this inside out. It's, you'd know absolutely everything about all the technology. So today it is technology. And I, I don't, I don't very much people could go anywhere in this world and grow it without growing the technology. And like I said, I'm meeting a lot of people and there's at least two come up with technologies to ask me what to do. And okay, luckily I've been able to point them in a direction because I know some of you can help. People who have grown the technology in Reebok or people who were in Reebok who are now big in technology. So it's what you've learned that you're able to pass them on. But it's all, all to do with technology now. Everything is so incredible. And social media now, it, it, it just, it's our lives. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, if, if you were setting up something, I don't know, I mean, I say some of the, there's some new ideas which, are, which have been brought to me. And yes, I would probably be in that. If I was anything between 15 and 25, I'd be, I'd be up there and pushing to say, well, wow, yes, where's it going to happen? Where's it going to go? Yeah, are we going to need uh, stadiums as we see them now? I mean, yes, you need people there, you may be. But, you know, with the, uh, the technologies we have, photographically and cinematographically, you know, you know people, you'll be able to sit by and be, you're almost on the pitch. I, mean, I think one of, the, one of the sports which has really improved through all the cinematography and what we have today is something like cricket. Cricket is probably boring to most people. But today, they can slow that ball. They can do everything. You know, you're watching every little bit, and they make it interesting now. And, and there's a lot of sports where they do the same, but I think cricket has gained an awful lot through the fact that you can see every minute detail. And you, you're almost, you're on there. You're on the field. You're almost playing. And you know, is that, are we all going to be three-dimensional? Is everything going to be, you know, everything turn up? And you know, instead of me talking to you here, you're going to be sitting in this chair next to me. Yeah, is this where we're going? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be an image of you. It's, it's going to be three-dimensional. We're going to be sitting in this chair. I, I would almost be able to touch you. <laughs> yeah, this, this, is, this is where we're going. <laughs> I love that, Joe. What young entrepreneurs inspire you today? What entrepreneurs do you look at and think, I see a little bit of Joe Foster in them? Well, I mean, you've got, to, you've got to look at Elon Musk, whether you like him or you don't like him, but you know, that is incredible. And the stuff that Amazon are doing, you know, you, uh, you know we have Alexa, you know, and you wonder, well, since she hears everything you're saying, where's that going to? You know, have we now lost our privacy? You know, do we need to switch everything off? <laughs> because everything is being passed around. Incredibly so. Um, so, yeah, people like Elon Musk. And, you know, there's lots of people out there who are, who are running companies which are now relying upon uh, technology. You know, technology is taking, taking over everything. And uh, 
and I think that yes, we are going electric. Yes, we are we are moving in in the directions that we need to move to have a better planet and to have many things. Um, but also there are plenty of dangers because it, we get the incitement that you've got in America. You know, these things bring over the po many other possibilities. And uh, you know, not, not everybody likes to be nice. <laughs> Quite a few people don't like to be that nice and they use it in the wrong way. So, you know, that's the pros and cons. Joe, now you've written your book, retired from Reebok, you're on Clubhouse doing podcasts. What's next for Joe Foster? Will you ever just rest, Joe? Well, I've relaxed for quite some time and uh, I, I think now I have quite a mission. And that mission is to get the book to become a bestseller. <laughs> I, I, not much point in writing a book, is it, unless people read it. You know, it, 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 might be, it might be useful to be sort of uh, for yourself and say, well, I did that, yes. But now I'd like people to read it. And uh, I, I think we seem to be doing fairly well. You know, and uh, people do pass on the word. Joe, I can testify it's a fantastic working class story. I've given it a five-star rating on Amazon and encourage the listeners right now to drop what they're doing, get on Amazon, order a copy or get an audio version on Audible. I've used both and leave a five-star review so we can get Joe, the working class hero that built Reebok, to number one on the Amazon bestsellers. Let's do this, Joe. <laughs> but, Joe, if you were to give me a young 22-year-old man or perhaps young Joe and Jeff Foster a single piece of advice, what would it be? How would you inspire me? Believe in yourself. I think if you have the energy, um, don't frustrate it. You'll only regret that if you just sit on it. Have a go. Just, and, you know, to be an entrepreneur, you need to be quite young because you don't need to have the fears that you have as you grow older and the responsibilities. So just believe in yourself. Go ahead and keep going. It's not always that easy. But, you know, it's... You, you, would, you would regret not trying. And, and I think uh, you, if you've got some belief, don't, don't ask too many people too many questions because you will get confused. Trust yourself. I love that, Joe. This podcast aims to bridge the gap between aspiring adolescents and thought leaders such as yourself through the medium of Genesis stories and origin stories. And yours is well and truly inspired me. And I hope it inspires others just to start you've instilled belief in me where can the people find you online joe where can people get in contact with you we're on all uh, um all the platforms i think we're on linkedin linkedin is a big one what was that there twitter, twitter. um we're on them all so you, you know go on to twitter linkedin um instagram is it yeah yeah, as, as Reebok, the founder, we, we're on there. Joe, I'm so grateful that you stopped by today. You were the very first person that I reached out to to come on the podcast. You may remember that message. Thanks for the same copy of the book. Thanks for your time today. I am eternally grateful. It was amazing to connect with you and conversate with you. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure for me too. And I hope it works for you. I hope you get a lot more out of this. And just keep going at it. You know, it's <clears throat> make it a passion and enjoy it. Ha! <laughs>
How amazing was that? The founder of Reebok stopping by to tell us his story about building Reebok and all the lessons that he learned. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and I'm so grateful if you made it this far. Please, please do me a favour and share in your story if you've listened. It really, really helps us share this message of collecting origin stories and distributing them to, to those who might need this motivation. But thank you again for, for making it this far. See you next time.